0: The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. Now I want to get into the Word. Now this is what I'm passionate about. I love the Scripture. I wished I would have written this down in, in an envelope and sealed it. Written it down, stuck it in an envelope, sealed it up, and then brought it up here and done like a Johnny Carson trick with you. You guys remember that, Karnak? You remember that guy? It's funny stuff, huh? Yeah. Well, I wished I would have done that because I know, I mean, even when you're preparing a message like this or you have it stirring in your heart, as it's developing, you just know. You just know, God, we're going to deliver that word. We're going to pursue that as a congregation, and I can guarantee you attendance will be at an all-time low. Because I know what you're delivering here, and I know that there are schemes, traps, there's all kinds of things that are going to keep people from that word, because it's the word that's absolutely necessary. Now, I'm not saying if someone's not here this morning that it's because the devil kept them away. I'm just saying every time there's been a word on this subject, it has always come with minimal response. Now, I want that to stir something maximum in each one of us, that this is a really important message. This is absolutely foundational and necessary to move anywhere. Now, we're, we're going to step into a series. This series is going to involve seven steps to love. Now, love is an important thing. Love is actually God himself, according to the book of 1 John. God is love. Love has this wonderful effect. When, when present in our lives, love drives out fear. Fear in any way, shape, or form. Anxiety, concern, doubt, worry. Love just drives it away doesn't negotiate, doesn't leave a little space for it, but actually kicks it out, evicts it. Love does amazing things. Love perfects us, by the way. Like, have you ever read in the scripture that God has begun a good work in you and he's going to continue that work or perfect that work until the day of the Lord? That's you and me. That's every believer. God's going to continue to do work in our lives to perfect us. How does he perfect us? Well, according to the scripture, he perfects us by his love. You'll find that in 1 John as well. That the one that fears has not yet been perfected by the love of God. That perfection that comes into our life leads us to this bold living in the kingdom of God that can function and operate just like Jesus. And it's a wonderful thing. So we want to get to love, but according to the scripture, we've got some steps to get there. Step one, I believe, is a major obstacle throughout Christianity at large. I'm concerned that we want step seven. We want that final thing. We want, that. we want all that God's promised, that life that's void of fear, that life that celebrates the perfection of the kingdom of God lived out through our words and our actions. But step one seems to be an obstacle. We're going to get into that, but as we begin here, I want to give you three things we're going to find. One thing we're going to find is what step one to love is. Step one to having love functioning and operating and flowing through our lives. We're going to find out what that first step is. Step two, why you were chosen. You were chosen, Jesus said of himself. He said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Any believer, anyone whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life, there's a purpose behind that being chosen. We're going to find out what that is. It's important for us to know that, by the way. If that's the point, if that's the point, we ought to make sure that that point is being celebrated, embraced, and put to practice in our life. And then the third thing we're going to find, how to be in the presence of God. I like that one. I think that's an important one, how to be in the presence of God. Those things sound good to you? All right, well, here we go. We're going to start off here. I told you we're going to find step one to love. Now, it's going to take us a minute to get there. But we're going to find it here in this passage. If you can, not open your Bibles to 2 Peter. 2 Peter is the book we're going to be looking in chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Now just for your information, most of the time when I'm reading, I'm reading out of a New American Standard. Many of you use a King James or a New King James. There might be a little difference in the verbiage, but the words are 100% the same in what they mean and their implications and their directions. So 2 Peter chapter 1, I want to begin reading in verse 1, we're going to go all the way through verse 11, but we're going to make a few stops along the way. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant of the apostle Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith the same kind as ours. I like to stop right there. From a message perspective, from a preaching perspective, there's absolutely no reason for me to include Verse 1, and what I want to deliver this morning, except for that. I love that. I love that Peter, who was there, who ran to the tomb, who saw it empty, who stood when Jesus appeared before the disciples after the resurrection, who walked and listened and then watched Jesus ascend into the heavens, who then was there on Pentecost when the Holy Ghost came in as rushing wind and a flaming tongue of fire. That guy, that guy, Is talking about our faith, same as ours. To those who have a faith, the same as ours. I love that. To those people that have the faith, the same kind of ours, by righteousness of our God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now he gets into the point, beginning in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Seeing that his divine power, now he's talking about God the Father, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to, if your Bible says by, feel free to scratch it out and write in the word to, to his own glory and excellence. I want to stop there for a second. We talked about this a little bit last week. I want to make sure that we catch this moving forward. There's something incredible that's being revealed here. The things that God's doing in our life, they have a purpose. He's doing this magnificent work in us. And that one little word there, the word by or the word to, whichever one your Bible has, has the ability to totally change what's being revealed here. If all of this is happening by God's glory and His excellence, then that's how God's doing it. But if God's doing this to call us to His glory and His excellence, then that's where He's taking us. And that's where He's taking us. That's the actual translation, but for a lot of people, that's hard for their minds to wrap around. Surely, that's not what it means. So let's say He's doing it by His glory and His excellence. But the reality is, and the truth is, He's calling you to His glory and to His excellence. And you'll see that confirmed just here in a few sentences. We move on to see... For by this He's granted to us, that's just a fancy word for given, by this He's given to us precious and magnificent promises. And I don't want to miss out on any of those. I don't want you to miss out on any of those either. So that, can you say so that? Yeah, so that's important. So that shows the reason for these promises. He's giving us these promises so that. So that by them, you, who's you? You. That's you, baby. You know you're good looking. So that you may become partakers in the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in this world by lust. Man, what an awesome thing. Now I know that we get acquainted with things as if we concede. Well, yeah, it's written in the scripture. So we're going to concede that that's in there. That I was made in the image of God and after his likeness. That's one thing that we'll be willing to concede because between being made in the image of God and after His likeness, there's a fall. So we can justify that. Yeah, I was made in the image of God and I was made after His likeness, but then sin came in. But now we have to reconcile this, that God is right here, right now, nothing in between, calling you to His glory and His excellence. That's awesome. And He's doing it to give us these wonderful promises So that by these promises, we can share in His nature. His nature. Become partakers in the divine nature. Now, when I say the divine nature, what does that mean to you? I want the wheels to turn. You don't have to answer out loud. I just want your wheels to turn. Because when we read these things, it sounds a little different than, hey, if you don't want to go to hell, raise your hand, and you can become a Christian. Yet this is what God's doing in each one of us. He's fulfilling everything that He began. As He made us in His image and after His likeness, He's now cleansed us from all unrighteousness through the blood of Jesus and bestowed upon us His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, so that we can partake in His nature. Isn't that amazing? That's why it's important for us to know His nature. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they might know you. Knowing who God is is extremely important. I like the banners that are around here. I understand that they might be a little dated. I mean, I get that. But I just like the fact that they remind us of who He is. Because every time He's revealed one of His names, He's revealing His nature. That will never change. He's a healer and a provider. He's present. And He hears. He cares. And He's near to you. It's an amazing thing to consider the nature of God and it's an even more amazing thing to consider that He's calling us to partake in that. Those are words right there that you could sit in your own time and just soak and ask the Holy Spirit, teach me what that really means. I'd love to know what that means. Now I want to move on here so that we can get to what we are looking for this morning. So as we've learned that God's calling us to His glory and His excellence... That He's granted us these precious and magnificent promises so that by them we can partake in His nature and escape the corruption and the lust that's in this world. It goes on to say now in verse 5. Now for this very reason, also apply diligence in your faith to supply. Now here we go, you're going to see seven things here. I want to refer to these as seven steps to love. We obviously want to get to love. God is love, and love is what identifies us as disciples. That is love for one another. It's a very important thing. Drives out fear. We've already emphasized why we need to have love in our lives. Step one, supply these things in your faith. One, moral excellence. That's what we're going to talk about today. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in knowledge, self-control. And in self-control, perseverance. And in perseverance, godliness. And in godliness, brotherly kindness or brotherly love. And in your brotherly kindness, love. You see this as a pathway, as a step. And I know that we write our songs about love. We preach our messages about love. We, we build our hope upon love. But when I look throughout the church at large, you can see a void or an absence or a manufactured sense of love. I want to see something so pure and so real that it can be unmistakable that that is truly the nature of God. God is love. It's what I want to flow from my life. It's what I want to see pour out of the church. Overflow into the city and the community and spread across the world. But we're going to have to do step one first. No matter how bad you want step seven, no matter how many seminars we go to or conferences we go to or how many songs we write or prayer meetings we attend pursuing the love of God until we can fulfill step one it's going to be very difficult. Moral excellence. thats what it all starts with. I want to finish this passage and then we're going to talk about that excellence in just a moment. I want to read now from verse eight. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... What would that mean for something to be increasing? Okay, let me give you an example. My son sits down with a bowl and a bag of Cheerios. He opens up the bag like an ape, so they spread everywhere. And then he begins to pour Cheerios into the bowl. And I'm watching as they continue to increase and increase and increase and increase and increase until they're now on the table and now they're on the floor. So what would that mean for something to continue to increase? It just gets more and more, yeah. Think about that. Listen to this. This is an amazing thing to consider. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, there's two conditions there. One, we need to have these qualities. But two, we need to never be satisfied. They're not credentials. Well, I've got moral excellence done there. Moving on to knowledge, got my knowledge merit badge. Now I need perseverance. That's what I need next and I can move on. These things are meant to be pursued every waking moment of our life. That we don't just have them, but that we grow in them and grow in them and grow in them. When these things are ours and they are increasing, they will render you neither. That's a weird way to say it they will render you neither useless or unfruitful. What that means is when you have these things and these things are increasing, you're going to be very useful in the kingdom of God and you're going to be very fruitful in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I know when I became a Christian, I didn't become a Christian because I grew up in church where my parents pushed it on me. I I did grow up in church and I did have my parents uh, lead me in, in Christianity, but I I became a Christian because God moved in my life in very powerful and profound ways. I was in horrible bondage and deep addiction, and I couldn't break out. I was miserable, and I hated my life and everyone around me. And then all of a sudden, God came and moved, and I was aware of what was true. That I was loved, that I was chosen, that I was cherished, that I did have value and worth. And all the addiction and the bondage that kept me trapped was then removed from my life in a very miraculous and powerful way. It was really incredible. That's why I'm a Christian. That's even why sometimes I just lift my hands in worship, because I'm not in handcuffs, and I can, just because I can. That's why I'm a Christian. But when I became a Christian, when I was confronted with that that had happened, and we're talking about within 24 hours, I had to ask myself, do I really want to be a Christian? You just did this in my life. I don't feel the same. I'm not led by the same temptations and lusts. I feel like a completely different person. But is this really what I want? And I remember praying a prayer, and it's not a prayer that's Doctrine, nobody needs to pray this. I just remember praying it. And I remember saying this, and I mean, it's a little bit arrogant, so just bear with me. Keep in mind, I'm a new Christian, right? God, I'm only interested in this if it's real. I'm only interested in this if it's real. I think the reason why I was only interested if it was real was because I'd spent so much time trying to fake it. I'd spent so much time trying to go to church to listen to messages and go to this meeting and that meeting. And, and I'd tried to kick the habit and quit doing this and stop doing that and don't go over there. And I just tried all of that, but because it had no power behind it or no authority behind it, it was always empty. And I'd come to a point where that was such a waste of time. I'm really only interested if it's real. And I think what we see here is something incredible being revealed to us. That God's called us to Christianity. And this is the real move of God that God has called us to. Not just simply escaping judgment and condemnation, but actually sharing in the nature of God right here and right now. As it's written there in Peter, becoming a partaker in the divine nature through these wonderful and precious promises. So we want to be fruitful. I want to do something great. I want to do something real. I want to be useful. I don't want to just fake Christianity. I'm wanting to see everything that you have written down in your word become a reality and become real in my life. I want this for everyone that I encounter. I want it for you. And here's why. Verse 9. The one that lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, Be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. That sounds pretty good to me. And then verse 11. For in this way is the entrance. Can you say entrance? Yes. For this way is the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, and it will be abundantly supplied to you. That sounds awesome. To not talk about the kingdom, but to enter into it. To not just sing about it. To not just write books about it, to not just preach messages about it, but to actually function and operate under Jesus Christ's headship. His leadership, his guidance, functioning in his authority, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's why I want this in my life and I want it in your life. Now, I want to go back real quick to verse 9, just really quickly, because I think this is important to see. I mentioned that before when I personally became a Christian and then had to make a decision. Verse 9 reads like this. For the one that lacks these qualities, now those qualities are going to be those seven things, is blind or short-sighted, having forgot his purification from former sins. Who's been purified from former sins? Christians. It is possible for us to forget that. It's possible for us to lose sight of just how amazing the work of God has been in our life and all of a sudden we're not pursuing or valuing these things that lead to love. The very nature of God that we could partake in or share in. I want to be a people who aren't short-sighted. Who are remembering what God has done. Not just to remember what He's done, but to remember why He's done it. I've been liberated from that bondage and that captivity. Because number one in pursuing his likeness, his image, his nature, is moral excellence. And that's going to be hard to do when you're in bondage. So it's not just that he did it. It's why he did it. God would set me free from those things that would keep me filthy, keep me unrighteous, keep me unclean. Not just so that I could escape judgment, but so that I could be morally excellent. That word, excellent, morally excellent, it's actually one word in the Greek. It's one word in the Greek, and I want to read where it comes from. I really like this word. This could be my favorite word ever. You say it, ereth, or eret, depending on how you pronounce it, A-R-E-T-H. It means moral excellence, but here's where it comes from. It comes from a word that means properly. Now here's what I like, the next one, manliness. Can I get an amen from all you guys out there? Yes. Manliness. God wants me step one to be manly. Did you hear that, honey? I love that. <laughs> step one, be a man. <laughs> ah. Manliness. But then here's what it's here's how it's describing that. In excellence, praise and virtue. As much as it means manliness, it means praise. Now, virtue is the word that most of you that are using a King James probably see the word virtue instead of moral excellence. It's, it's the same thing. Virtue would be moral excellence. Unfortunately, virtue is just a word that we don't use very often in today's language. So, by definition, here's what these things would mean. Number one, a virtuous course of thought, feeling, or action. Number two, virtue or moral goodness. Number three, a particular moral excellence as modesty or purity. I like that last word, purity. Purity and holiness are one and the same. Holiness. Holiness is the point of the blood of Jesus. Holiness is the point of your new birth. Holiness, that God would call us into holiness. I'll give you some evidence of that in the Scripture, in just a moment. I want to tell you why you were chosen. I told you that was one of the three things we're going to find. One, we're going to find step one to love. That's moral excellence. We're going to continue to talk about that. But why you were chosen was the second thing we're going to find. By the way, if you're ever wondering if you were chosen or not, you can just write this verse down for your notes. John chapter 15, verse 16. John chapter 15, verse 16 reads like this. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I chose you and I appointed you so that you would go and bear much fruit and your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he would give to you. It's an amazing thing. Jesus is revealing to us something incredible right here. When he's revealing that we didn't choose him, but he chose us, that ought to be a relief of any kind of burden, any care, any fear, any anxiety. It can just be removed from our life. We have a saying in my house that what you choose is what you love. What you choose is what you love. And it's a true saying. When Jesus is saying this, he's not on some kind of a power trip. He's not belittling the disciples or insulting their intelligence or their IQ. He's not making himself out to be superior in any way. What he's revealing is his heart, his love, and his affection. That he would choose them. Because what you choose is what you love. And it's a wonderful thing to consider that we've been chosen. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. The last place you turned to was in 2 Peter. So go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Don't make the mistake of 2 Peter chapter 2. It's easy to do. told you we're going to find out why you were chosen well what you choose is what you love that was the motivation behind your being chosen but there's a purpose behind God choosing you and it's an amazing thing to consider first Peter chapter 2 I want to read verses 9 and 10 Obviously the fact that God would choose you is revealing that he loves you. And now I want you to catch the purpose behind why he chose you. He chose you for this amazing purpose. 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning in verse 9. You are a chosen race. What kind of race? Yes, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What kind of nation? Holy, that's pure moral excellence. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that, can I get a so that? Yeah, here comes the reason. The reason why you were chosen. You were chosen. You're purified. You're given authority. So that you may proclaim the excellencies or the moral excellence. It's the exact same word. You could also say the manliness. There you go. A few people caught that. You can proclaim the moral excellence of him who has called you out of darkness into light. That's why you were chosen. I was chosen so that I could proclaim the moral excellencies of God himself. Now, here's a question it's not meant to shame anyone. I mean, I would ask this of myself Do we proclaim his moral excellencies? Does my life proclaim God's morality? Or am I using the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit like the get out of jail free card in Monopoly? Or am I realizing that God's done something great in my life so that my life is now a living testimony of his purity, his holiness, his moral excellence. He's chosen me. He's empowered me. He's anointed me. My life is not driven anymore and your life isn't driven anymore by thou shalt not. It's not governed by rules and laws whether we've been empowered by a nature, His nature, to partake in His nature. And His nature is pure. Moral excellence and the purpose behind our being called and chosen is to proclaim That excellence. I want to read verse 10 here. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. There was a time when you had not received mercy, but now you have. All of the mercy that God's poured into our life has this purpose behind it to bring us to a place where our lives proclaim His moral excellence. And when I look around in our society and our culture, whether it's in the world or in the church, I see an extreme attack on morality. And where moral excellence is celebrated or presented, it's written off as foolish or outdated. I remember once making a stand, very appropriately, in a church congregation, concerning an act that was obviously immoral. And a large number of people walked out of the church Because they found it offensive to think that they would not be able to divide their faith from their politics. But God's called us to be transformed in every aspect of our living. Not just to take on the divine nature when Pastor Jared sings a song so that we can get the warm and fuzzies. But to take on the divine nature so that we can take dominion on the earth. Establish his kingdom. Tear down the works of Satan. Build up all that's righteous, all that's true. We're empowered to do these things, and we're called to do these things. Now, Earlier when I mentioned Jesus choosing you, we were referring to this conversation that was recorded in John 15. There's a passage that comes just two or three verses later. Now you know my math's no good, because it's verse 19. That's four verses later. I want you to see it, because I think it's important this morning. It might feel a little scattered, but if you can turn back there, that's great. You don't need to. John chapter 15 is when Jesus reveals this wonderful thing. Remember, what you choose is what you love. And he's revealing, hey, God loves you so much. He's chosen you. But then you just move a little ways down. And you see something. And what we see there, I think it's important for us to ask ourselves this. Just to take what's written there and alter it a little bit, put it in the form of a question, and then apply it to our own life. I'm going to begin in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you, therefore the world hates you. Isn't that interesting? So there are sometimes I have to ask myself Does the world love me? Do I blend in? Am I accepted when I step into <clears throat> any worldly situation or circumstance, whether it's ethical or political or financial, relational, any of those alls? Does the world love me or do they hate me? You know, it was verses like that that kept me from going absolutely insane when I saw half a congregation get up and walk out. I was able to say, the world hates me, and that's a good thing. We ought to ask ourselves that. When we reconcile our lives against the world, Is it grating to the world because we're partakers in the divine nature and it goes against everything that the world stands for and is pursuing? All that's empty, vain, and according to the scripture, and it's true, destined to pass away. Is the moral excellence that we've been called to carry evident to the point that the world despises us? Or are we willing to compromise and indulge the world on occasion so we kind of have an agreement? A mutual standing, so to speak. I want to give you a passage of scripture here that ought to define our lives. You can take it down for your notes there. Ephesians chapter 5. I want to begin in verse 11 and read through 14. As it concerns moral excellence, we have this. One as an instruction and two as a very exciting thing to hope in. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, it reads like this. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Now remember, we started this series talking about how to be fruitful. We mentioned these seven steps to love, that when these things are in our life, we'll be useful and fruitful. And now we're seeing here a contrast to that in Ephesians, that the deeds of darkness are unfruitful. And it's saying, do not participate in unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. It's disgraceful even to speak of the things that are done in secret. But all things, now this is where the hope and the excitement comes from, all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Now you might want to read that two or three times. Because I think it takes a second to catch that. I didn't misread it, but it is written strange. Because it's not what you're expecting. What it's saying here is that when things are exposed by the light, those things that were exposed by the light become light. That's my life, by the way. I had a number of things that were in secret and in darkness, bondage and affliction that kept me void of moral excellence. And when light entered into my life, it exposed every single one of them. Now, there's something that has happened in the church today. I want to get to that in a second. The things that happened in my life that were hidden and in secret because of shame, which is the work of the devil, were now surrendered by the conviction, that's the work of the Holy Ghost, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And those things were allowed to be exposed to light. I don't have secrets. And the moment those things became exposed to light, those things became light themselves. That's my testimony. I'm not embarrassed to talk about addiction. I'm not ashamed to talk about bondage because it no longer binds now it's a testimony of how amazing and how awesome the authority and the power of Jesus Christ is all of those things that were dark are now light because they were exposed and made visible there's a couple of things that have happened in the past this is going to be quick but I just want to add this to the message You may not be familiar with church history, but Champions' Church could be labeled a number of different titles, or you know, it could fit in a few different genres of church. That's not very important. but ultimately, if you go back into the past, champions would stand out as a result of the Protestant movement. There was a time when all church was in Latin, it was all Catholicism, and there were men who realized that this is not fruitful, it's not effective. The Word of God is not entering into people's lives. Now imagine you came to Champions Church and I told you I'm really excited for the Word today. God has got some amazing things He's going to give to us. We're going to find the keys to life and joy and peace and prosperity and all of those things. Now please turn in your Bibles to, and then I began to preach, and it was who ordered a Domino's Pizza. Someone in here ordered a Domino's Pizza. That's the best Latin that I have. Excellent Domino's Pizza. Domino's Pizza is excellent. And then I just waved my hand and said, God bless you, goodbye. You wouldn't receive any of the word. You would leave here the same as you came in. And men saw that and said, this has got to change. And they risked their lives. Men were tortured and killed to translate the scripture into the common tongue. And when they did this, they established what was called the Protestant church. Now, we are a result of that. Now there's a few things that happened. One, you might refer to me as Pastor Preston. You're welcome to call me Preston. You can call me whatever you like. That word pastor is not even a biblical word. The word in the Bible is actually shepherd, where it's translated in the five-fold ministry. But the reason why pastor was selected was for the Protestant movement. They wanted a word other than father because they didn't want to appear Catholic. And then something else happened that I think maybe... Are you familiar with the term throwing out the baby... With the bathwater, right? Okay, well, you need to throw the bathwater out. That's important. But keep the baby, all right? Have you noticed we really don't confess in the Protestant church? Go through the scripture and see the power of confession. It's throughout there. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will purify us pure, holy, moral excellence from all unrighteousness. Confession. Now, in order to not look Catholic, we don't have confession anymore. I don't absolve people of their sins. But I can tell you there's something powerful that happens when we appropriately, rightly, and biblically confess our sins to one another. They become exposed to light, and they themselves become light. It's an amazing thing. I believe that we need to get back to confession. Oftentimes, When we minister deliverance, it involves a lot of confession. And what's amazing is that confession is very liberating. And it leads to freedom. And it lets us function and operate in these precious promises, as it's put, in 2 Peter. And, of course, that first step that's so important, moral excellence. Now, I want to give you a few keys here to walking in moral excellence. Are you ready for these? If you're going to record anything in this message, record these few things here. Now, they might be a little bit loose because they were jotted down during worship, but I think they're going to be really impactful for us. And by the way, this message isn't just for you. This message is for you to carry. There are people in this congregation, there are people in our communities that need to be led to moral excellence. Not through legalism, not by any assault, but by our example. Moral excellence will never function in the love that we desire to function in as believers without moral excellence coming first. So here is a key to moral excellence. You can take this down for your notes. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. What you'll find when you look up that passage is that bad company corrupts good morals. I want to say that again. Bad company corrupts good morals. Notice that it's absolute. Bad company corrupts good morals. It's not variable. It's not, hey be careful because sometimes bad company corrupts good morals. It's not variable in any way. It doesn't say bad company could corrupt good morals. It doesn't say bad company might corrupt good morals. It just simply says bad company corrupts good morals. I'm very particular about who I hang out with. I have a lot of acquaintances. I work around some people or or I have to engage certain uh, individuals and I know their standards are way different than mine. But the people that I choose to be with in my spare time, I'm very particular about that. Because I have an understanding and awareness that the Scripture is absolute, unapologetic that if I'm going to walk in moral excellence, I need to be around good company. Good company. Because bad company will corrupt good morals. Another key to walking in moral excellence, you can take this down for your notes. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to read verses 3 through 8. It's a lot of reading, but the emphasis is on verse 3. What you're going to find here is what the will of God is for your life. The will of God for your life concerning morality. And if we're going to walk in moral excellence, we need to take into consideration what's being revealed to us here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'm going to begin in verse 3. For this is the will of God. I like that. That makes me want to pay attention. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That's great. God's will is that you be sanctified. That is, now he goes on to explain what your sanctification is going to consist of. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. If we're going to have moral excellence in our lives, we've got to be free from sexual immorality. Do you think there's any coincidence why there's such an assault on sexual morality in the world today? Just the ridiculous amount of filth. And by the way, you don't have to log on to to pornographic websites to see pornography. I'm having trouble now watching a football game on Sunday because of the commercials that come on. It's really, really shameful. And there's an urgency inside of me to ring the bell and to call out, we've got to be careful what we look at. We've got to be careful what we touch. We've got to be careful what we do because the will of God is that we abstain from sexual immorality. We'll never have moral excellence if we indulge in sexual immorality in any way, shape, or form. I want to keep reading this. This is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own body in sanctification and in honor, not in lust like those who do not know God, That's interesting to me. I mean, I'd just like to stop there just for a second. Do you realize what's being revealed here? One, what the will of God is, that we abstain from sexual immorality. But then the reference there at the end of that scripture ought to awaken us that there's a difference between those that function in that lust and those that don't. And the difference there is knowing God, partaking in His nature, moral excellence. Moral excellence. It goes on to say that no man that transgresses has defrauded his brother in this matter because the Lord is avenger of these things. Just as it's also been solemnly warned to you, God's not called us for the purpose of immorality, but sanctification. Consequently, now this is verse 8, and this is where we're going to stop, but I'd like for you to say consequently. I want you to say that because I'm concerned that there's been a Christianity that just ignores consequences. That feels that there's no consequences whatsoever. That's that get out of jail free card. That's only good in Monopoly. Verse 8, consequently, meaning there are consequences. He That rejects this is not rejecting men, but rejecting God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. Now, I want to give you another verse just to help this one make a little more sense. Because I think if I were to ask in here, hey, how many of you believe that sexual immorality is bad, I think hands would fly up. I'd like to know why it's bad. I'd like to know why we need to stay away from that. One, because we'll never have moral excellence, which is step one toward love. Without, uh, with sexual immorality. And then two, I want you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, we're going to look in chapter 6. is a little more like a Bible study than a message this morning. But I'm excited for it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is why we need to abstain from sexual immorality. Yeah, it's the will of God. Yeah, it's bad. And yeah, there are consequences, but here's why there's consequences. We need to understand this and it's important. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee. Can you say flee? flee? Now what does it mean to flee from something? Run away. Now you want to know what's crazy to me? I've been taught as a, a Christian to stand or to fight. And now here hear the words telling me run That should stand out to us. Flee. Run away from immorality. Remember, we're desiring morality, moral excellence. And this is telling us run away from immorality. Run away from it. If we want to walk in moral excellence, we've got to be willing to run away from immorality. Flee from immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside of his body. But immorality sins against one's own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost who is in you and you have from God, that you're not your own, but you've been bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's why it's important that we stay clean. Sexual morality in our lives is important because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. So if we want to pursue moral excellence, one, we're going to have to keep good company. Two, we're going to have to be moral and flee from sexual immorality. Now here's a third key to the pursuit of moral excellence in our lives. I told you before, this will be our last point, how to be in the presence of God was going to be one of the things we're going to find. We're going to find that right now. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. See, wonderful things about Jesus through the book of Philippians. That he would empty himself, that he would take on the nature of a servant, that he would come and serve. And then here in Philippians chapter 4, we begin to see the purpose behind all of that, the results of that in our lives. But moral excellence is the goal. Step one toward love. And in order to pursue moral excellence, one, we're going to have to be careful the company we keep, because bad company corrupts good morals. Two, we're going to have to abstain from sexual immorality. And then three now in Philippians, chapter 4, I want to begin reading in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near, and be anxious for nothing, But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Now I want to move on here. Verse 8 begins reading like this Finally, can you say finally? Yeah, this is actually something that we need to see is tying up all of these things. This is the conclusion. The summary, the whole point of all those things that's been said up to this point. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, whatever is of any moral excellence, that's that same word, whatever is of any excellence or worthy of praise, dwell on these things, the things you've learned and received and have heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. It's an interesting passage of scripture. It could even be a little bit puzzling. but I kind of want to simplify it for a second. I read through that list and I just think, what a great list. Whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, morally excellent, worthy of praise, dwell on these things. I think that could be a nice list just to make out and then ask ourselves when we're dwelling on anything. Whether it's sitting down in front of the television or turning on some music, I'm about to dwell on this, let me see if it's on my list. Is this true? Is this honorable? Is this right? Is this pure? Is this lovely? Is this of good repute? Is this of moral excellence? Is this worthy of praise? And maybe if it doesn't make that list, maybe if you can't check off even one of those boxes, you ought to not dwell on it. I think if we're called to moral excellence, to reveal God's nature in His moral excellence, we've been chosen in order to proclaim His moral excellence in our life and in our actions. We need to be very careful what we participate in, very careful who we hang out with, extremely careful how we live our lives. Moral excellence is a wonderful thing can become difficult to preach on because of a history where things have been produced through legalism and abuse and aggression. But I want to see something real and genuine here that's not led by shame, but led by conviction. Shame is the tool of the devil. Shame wants to keep things in the dark. Conviction is the function of the Holy Ghost and it wants to bring things into the light. For the purpose of setting us free from the weight and the bondage, and the corruption that hinders our moral excellence. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at championschurch.org.